are made in the divine image. Look with compassion on the whole human family. Take away the arrogance and hatred which infect our hearts. Break down the walls that separate us. Unite us in bonds of love. And work through our struggle and confusion to accomplish the divine purposes on earth. And in good time, all nations and races may serve creation in harmony. And the people said, Amen. Please be seated. Great. Bear with me, I had cataract surgery, my glasses are gone, and I have to have these to read, but I can't see you, but where are <laughs> Thank God I'm not the only one. <laughs> you know, the theme for this evening is stories from around the table. And I feel compelled to share with you that I struggle, and I still struggle, to come up with one or two stories from around the table. You see, my family is huge. It is humongous, as a matter of fact. I mean, there are so many people in my family that I don't know most of their names. Many, I don't even recognize. And yet we share the same wants, the needs, and the desires, the joys, and the sorrows, and the disappointments. I talk with, I laugh with, and I even cry with many of my family every day. As is normal in the family, I share their tragedies, misfortunes, and calamities. I rejoice at the birth of their children and their grandchildren, the excitement of a new job or a new place to call home. I suffer with my brothers and sisters when they suffer. I feel their pains and their heartaches. I wonder and even worry about my family. What will happen to them as they get older? Will their children have a good education? Will they be safe, warm, and feel loved? I listen to their stories and make judgments as to why. Why they do what they do. As is the case in all families, I pray that each of my brothers and sisters be guided by our loving Father. One really, really good thing about my family is I can see and talk with them every day. They don't all live far away, in far away places. Some do, but I don't need to travel far to see them. You see, my family sits right here, right now, in front of me. My family lives next door and is just a holler away over the fence. My family lives on the street in tents or homeless, well, homeless warming shelters. How can this be, you might say? In St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, week 618, we hear, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. And if we believe this, then we are brothers and sisters 
We are family. And as family, we take care of one another. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. My dear brothers and sisters, you have been unselfishly caring for a very, very large family. Many of you have given up many nights of sleep to bring warmth, comfort, and shelter to so many. Because of your generosity and your concerns, many in our family have new socks, coats, gloves, sleeping bags, and even hand warmers. It is said that if you want to know what someone believes, watch what they do. Well, you, my brothers and sisters, have challenged me to be a better person. Your example of love is the greatest story I have that I have heard from around my table. May the Lord shine his face upon you. Good evening, I'm Chad Adamick, pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Family, and I am honored to be here before you today. I've often struggled with preaching on Thanksgiving as far as, as far as just, re for me, Thanksgiving is more than just about recounting the things that one is thankful for, all the material things, all the things that, as uh, Jesus says in a parable, things that, that, the, that can deteriorate, the moth can invade. Where Jesus invites us to focus our attention on, on, on more than material things, but on, on greater things. And I, and I thought, what, what greater things are there? And I think there's one story that, that best explains this, at least for me. It's from Luke's Gospel, where Jesus once healed uh, ten people, ten lepers. Leprosy, a very nasty skin disease, very uncomfortable uh, disease that people suffered from, but also one where people were ostracized from their families and from society. Uh, ten lepers were healed. All ten experienced this miracle of physical healing, of restoration to their families, to their communities. But one of them, according to Luke's Gospel, one of them turned around and return to Jesus to offer thanks. And I think that that act of noticing, noticing God's activity in the world, notice the healing, notice the, the cleansing, I think that's what our attention is being drawn towards. So for Thanksgiving, I, I think we are challenged to look more deeply to notice the gifts that that others have the the small miracles that take place around us and so I've reflected that in my almost three years in Carson City that there 
are so many people that I'm thankful for. Um, my colleagues, Jeff, JJ, Craig, uh, Thomas, Father Thomas, um, uh, Tony Brandon, uh, Veronica, so many others too. I give thanks for, for their good humor, for the counsel, for, for, the, for the, the gifts that they bring, just by them being them. Give thanks to the people in my congregation at St. Paul's. Uh, one of them is here, David, uh, that, that I see right now. And, and for all the work that they put into, um, all the work they put into helping all of us at St. Paul's communicate the good news of the gospel. That is how God's unconditional love permeates and, and, and overrides those, those voices that tell us that there's about scarcity, that there's not enough to go around, that we have to look after number one. That unconditional love that tells us that there's plenty to go around. It is okay that we can let down our guards and, and dare to love. And so I guess this Thanksgiving, I, I encourage you to continue to join me in this, in this careful noticing, noticing God at work around us, much like that one, that one Samaritan who noticed his healing and who was motivated out of joy and out of, out of gratitude. To, to acknowledge this gift and in turn after acknowledging it to receive blessing receive a blessing that comes from acknowledging that we don't live in a world of scarcity but of radical abundance and for the Christian tradition that's really what the, the message of, of resurrection is about Death tells us that, that it's the end, there's no more, it's finished. That God says, ah, there's still another chapter yet to be written. Thank you. Interesting uh, segue into what I'm going to do, Chad, because I brought some um, stories that are called the Jataka tales. So the historical Buddha lived um, about 2,600 years ago. He was uh, 35 when he uh, was enlightened under the Bodhi tree. He lived for another 45 years and taught during that whole period. His talks were memorized, and uh, a couple hundred years later, they were and it is said that he talked about his previous lifetimes um, as different kinds of people, but also animals. And however those stories ended up being in the, in the text, there are 550 stories about Buddha's previous lives, um, often as animals. And sometimes it's said that they are the, um, that Aesop may have heard these stories and they may have been part of got some of his ideas. Um, I don't know about that. but um, So I picked out two or three stories to read 
and they're written uh, in a way that you kind of have to guess which one is, is the Buddha in the story, it doesn't say. And they each have um, a uh, moral, there's a moral to the tale at the end. So the first one is called The Monkey King. I, I took really literally the idea to tell stories. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a monkey king who ruled over 80,000 monkeys. In his kingdom was a mango tree as big as the moon. The monkeys jumped all over the tree, eating the fruit and picking up those that fell to the ground. One of the tree's branches spread out over a river, and sometimes a mango fell into it and floated downstream. Danger will come if a mango flows, floats downstream, predicted the monkey king and he ordered the monkeys to catch any mangoes that fell into the water. But one night, unseen by the monkeys, a mango fell into the water and floated far down the stream. In the morning, when a human king who lived in a river palace went to take his bath, he saw the huge, beautiful fruit. After tasting it, he had to have more. I, I would too, I love mangoes. <laughs> right, TJ? <laughs> Mango rolls from TJ. <laughs> pause for an advertisement. <laughs> After tasting the mango, he had to have more, and he set out with his men to find the source upstream. In the evening, after a long, hard search, they spotted the enormous mango tree full of lovely ripe fruit. Since the men were tired, they camped beneath it for the night. When all the men had fallen asleep, the monkey king with his 80,000 monkeys crept into the tree and moving from branch to branch, started eating up all the mangoes. But the human king heard the monkeys and woke up. He called to his men, save the fruit, save the fruit. His men surrounded the tree and aimed their arrows at the monkeys. The monkeys trembled with fear, but the monkey king said, do not be afraid, I will save you. Quickly he wound his tail around the branch of the tree that spread over the river, then leaped across the river and caught a branch of a banyan tree on the other side, making a bridge of his own back. Then he called to the monkeys, come monkeys, run out onto the branch, across my back, and down the mango, the banyan tree. The monkeys did as their king told them to. They were all safe and sound. The human king, witnessing this scene, was amazed. He thought, all I am doing is saving fruit, while this monkey king has just saved his whole troop. I have learned a great lesson today. He went back to his kingdom, forgetting about the fruit, and began doing good works for all his people. So, think about what you might think the moral is. If the family lives in harmony, all affairs will prosper. I'll read one more. magic pig. <laughs> One day an old woman found two young pigs and brought them home with her in a basket. She named them Big Snout and Little Snout and treated them like her own children. In time they became big and fat. Many people thought they would be delicious and wanted to buy them to eat. But the old woman always said, these are my children. How could I sell my own children? One festival day, some ruffians were eating and drinking. They wanted more food and remembered the old woman's two fat pigs. They went off to get them. Banging drunkenly on her door, they offered her money, but she would not take it. Then they returned with weapons, ready to take the two pigs by force. 
Little Snout began to tremble all over and cried, Today we are doomed. But Big Snout said, Do not be afraid, and he began reciting the perfection of love, a great prayer that dispenses all evil, disperses all evil. Magically, his voice began to sound louder and louder and filled the old woman's house. It traveled outside, and the sound of love pierced the ears of the ruffians, who put down their weapons. The sound of love traveled into the palace, where it reached the king's ears. He asked, who is making this lovely sound? He followed it back to the old woman's home, where he was amazed to find that the source of the sound was a pig. He honored the old woman with a grand palace, where she and both pigs lived, clothed, perfumed, and jeweled. So. Christy grew up on a pig farm, so you might imagine your pet pig all bejeweled. <laughs> 500 royal guards protected them at all times. On holy days, Big Snout preached the perfection of love, and peace, truth, and love reigned throughout the kingdom. And the moral of the story is, heaven remembers those whose hearts are true. Households were eating at the table was very important. Um, we were both raised that way. We both ate at the table. So the, one of the things that we said we were going to do, we uh, had a family, was we were going to have family meals around the table. And much to my kids' demise, that we do that. Um, they would much rather have meals around the TV. Um, <laughs> but we're pretty good about not doing that, except for on Fridays. I think there's something about the idea of being around a table that really sparks this, this, this journey of life that we, we evolve to be storytellers around a table. We don't come out that way. If you think about, probably some of you in the next couple of days are going to have an adult table and a kid table. And when you have the kid table, it's very rarely there's any stories being told. Um, mostly in my house, it was my family growing up, there were a lot of people daring people to do things that we were probably going to get in trouble if we got caught doing those things. Um, or it was either that or trying to get some of the, the grossest concoction you could possibly do. And those stick with you to school. And then you start daring your friends around the table to mix all the food that's left over. And if it's liquid, that's even better because it fits in a cup and you can dare them to drink that cup. And, and it, just, it just evolves from there. But the, the stories don't happen until you actually have some experience to tell stories about. And so... I also am going to take this time very literally and tell stories about my wife. <laughs> Not totally. I remember we were newly married, and uh, if you can remember when you were newly married, we didn't have a whole lot of money. We were both full-time students, and so we would go grocery shopping, and usually her car was broke down, so we had my motorcycle. And we would get on the motorcycle, and we would go to the grocery store, and we would shop, and we would have all of our groceries stacked on our arms and then she would hold on and now, now that seems very intuitive but remember we were poor so it was probably like three grocery bags and so it wasn't that big deal but we got home one time and, and we were going to have dinner and Julie being the amazing caretaker that she was at the time caring for her husband was going to make chicken you can microwave chicken right <laughs> She throws it in the microwave, 
and this chicken comes out. You know those little plastic kitchens that the like little girls play with, where the boys people just put, they play with them. The chicken was from that. I'm quite certain it was the same piece of chicken that comes in those store little food packages. And we didn't eat it. Another time, she was catering to my needs because I don't like mashed potatoes unless there's gravy involved. In Julie's defense, she didn't grow up with gravy. They didn't eat gravy. They just had butter, which is gravy, just dairy form. And she goes to make gravy, and she goes to add pepper to the gravy, but did not check the lid of the pepper. Jeff, you've done this. Or she says, oh, okay. Somebody's getting hit over here. Like, <laughs> so she puts the pepper into the gravy, the lid falls off the pepper, and the entire container of pepper goes into this gravy. She served it. <laughs> Somewhere along our dating life, I told her I like spicy food. So she was going to test that theory. And I remember we ate that gravy, and it was the hottest, fiery substance I have ever chewed on in my entire life. And we tried and tried and tried, because wasting food back then was just not an option. Obviously, things have changed. But back then, we tried to eat that peppery gravy. And as, as I look back on those things, and they weren't that funny then, but they're funny now because we have this experience and we sit down and we tell these stories, and these stories evolve. And they evolve into a place where we can relate with one another. Like I say, I dumped pepper in gravy, and there he hits Jeff. <laughs> There's like this instant connection around table stories, right? That's why we tell stories. It's not just to hear ourselves talk, it's to connect with one another. And the minute someone tells a story, somebody else is going, oh my gosh, that's happened to me too. And it's like you can't wait to chime in. Some of you are those one-uppers. Somebody tells a story, and the whole time you're thinking to yourself, i got a better one, I can't wait till he stops talking. <laughs> and then you tell your better story. I was at a, a, a funeral a couple months ago for a friend of mine from high school. And we went to a reception afterward, and I saw the culmination of what it looked like to have experiences and stories being told around a table. We were at a friend's house and uh, at their kitchen table, and if you, you just have to picture this real quick, there were 20 musical theater majors, if not professionals, around this table. So, very small personalities. <laughs> and out of nowhere, these stories start to erupt. Stories about Jen, stories about things that happened when this is going on, and all these stories begin to get told. And there was this amazing thing that took place in the midst of that storytelling. It was as if the grief stepped aside for just a moment, and all of this amazing experience bubbled up to the surface and became the focus of that time. When we tell stories, that's what we're doing. We're connecting with one another. When we listen to stories, we're connecting with one another in the hopes that something bigger is going to happen, in the hopes that it's not just going to be the life that we are living right here, right now, but there is something bigger that we get to participate in through the life of others. And it's just like what Craig said. We live in a place where we acknowledge that we are not alone and that you are my family. 
And so as we begin to tell these stories, we reflect on these stories, we listen to these stories, and we become one. I remember thinking as I was leaving that house to come home, how this event that was supposed to be tragic, a 41-year-old dead because of alcohol, one of the most talented people I've ever met in my entire life, no longer here. And I remember leaving, fulfilled, and almost lifted up, because we made your story together. I, I joke with the people that we meet with at Pegs for Breakfast, the interfaith clergy, that I'm a token evangelical. And I love it. Because I get to sit around, I almost wore my collar tonight, <laughs> just to really identify with y'all. <laughs> I, I love being able to sit around with people that aren't always the same. Uh, we, we have drums and electric guitars. Julie made a joke earlier about a drum shield, and I said, I don't think I know what that is at this church. We're so different. We have chairs. We have pews. We have stained glass from 1874. <laughs> but our story is the same. Our connectedness is the same. The journey is to be the same. And so as we tell stories around this table, this week and forever, let us tell stories that connect us. Let us tell stories that lift us. And let us listen to stories that make us better. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirrahmanirrahim. Arrahmanirrahim. Maliki al-Mu'tin. Ia kena budua. Ia kena setain. Ihdina siratul mustaqim. Siratul ladina anam ta'alaihim. Wairil maghdubi alaihim. Waladolim. Amin. Okay. Hi everyone. I was given two to three minutes. Uh, to do some table talk here. So, I claim an English second uh, language exemption. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I heard from my Christian friend that Christians has just passed through one of their high holiday season, high holy seasons. He said it is a plant drive. So I thought, since it's fresh on a lot of people's mind, I thought I would make my table topic Islam and alms. You know, in Islam, we have five pillars. For the purpose of my talk, I will share them a little out of order. First, 
is the first one is the confession of uh, faith. It says, "Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadar Rasulullah." That means there is one God and Muhammad is God's prophet. And the other one is five times daily prayers. Fasting in the month of Ramadan. Go to Mecca for, to do pilgrimage or Hajj. And also giving alms or what we call Zakat. There are many levels of traditions surrounding zakat or giving alms. There's a couple, there's a couple of different ways to give alms. There are common ways. Support your community of faith and your team players and support those charities your community is engaged with local and beyond. But <clears throat> I want to share one of these, uh, the tradition that ground personal act of charity. Because especially now, in this time of thanksgiving, we praise God for all that He's given us. This, form, this is form of one of our second level of tradition in Islam, we call Hadith. It's from Hadith Bukhari, which says, This is the obligatory charity that that the Messenger of Allah enjoyed, enjoyed upon Muslims and Allah enjoyed upon His Messenger. This is direct giving to alms to the poor. Like when people approach, approach you on the street or hold the sign uh, on signal islands, I should tell you that uh, in Islam, we're not really allowed to question the motives of beggar. If we ask, we must give. Now, I'm going to sound like uh, that commercial, the Capital One commercial. What what you have got in your wallet? Have you heard that? Think for a moment. How much money do you have right now in your wallet on or on your debit card? God doesn't have doesn't use banks, but God does set up accounts. God sets up account for the poor. Right now, the poor have an account on what God has enjoined upon person persons in their abundance 2.5%. Right now. Many of us in this room are caretaking 2.5% of what belongs directly to the poor. Quickly do the math. What we have got in your wallet and to whom does it belong? Thank you so much. six months ago that, uh, that I joined this interfaith group and um, uh, I just
just want to say, you know, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, it's so wonderful to, to be part of a group like this. And the reason why is because, uh, as Jason mentioned, we have differences, but you know, we don't focus on the differences. We come together, and there's fellowship and love and, and building bridges. And in a society where many times it's polarized, it's nice to be part of a community where people come together even though we do have differences. So uh, I'm the um, I'm responsible for uh, members of the. It's many people call us Mormons, but that's a nickname. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we have uh, some congregations here locally. So when we talked about sharing stories around the table, I thought I would share a story that is unique to my faith. And this story happened about 200 years ago. Is um, uh, it was. Uh, just about 200 years ago, and there was a boy named Joseph Smith, and where he lived, there was a lot of religious excitement. And so his family was, was quite caught up in this religious excitement, trying to, to go to the church that they thought was right, and there were many different churches, and they had, uh, you know, each one had differences, and he was confused, where, what do I do, where do I go? And one day he was reading in the Bible, in the book of James, and it says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And so he was 14 years old at the time, and he said, I can do that, I can ask God. And so he went, he left his home, and he went to uh, a grove of trees nearby, and he started to, to offer prayer. And he had a unique experience, and I'd like to share that with you. And these are his words. So as he prayed, he said, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. And when the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and pointing to the other, and saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. In answer to his prayer, he received the visit of God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. It was a very special, sacred experience for him. And you can imagine, as a, as a boy of 14 year old, that, that's, that's quite a unique and special experience. It doesn't happen to uh, It's very uncommon. And so he shared that with some people. And he said, this is my experience. And as a result, many people treated him poorly. And, and uh, uh, they made fun of him. And, and so he, here's what he said about um, how he was treated by people. He said, however, it was nevertheless a fact that I beheld a vision. I had actually seen a light. And in the midst of that light, I saw two personages. And they didn't in reality speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying I had seen a vision, yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for saying, I was led to say in my heart, why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision. And who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I've actually seen? For I've seen a vision, and I knew it, and I knew God knew it, and I could not deny it. And so for me, that's uh, it's a very special experience. And so as a boy of 14 years old, he had that. And years later, he was called to be a prophet. And one of his uh, special responsibilities was to translate a book of Scripture. Now, uh, many of us, 
And in the Christian faith, we know the stories of the, the Holy Bible. And these are stories written by the prophets of, uh, that were called of God, and they wrote these special stories that are teachings about uh, how to connect with God. And we love them, and we use them in our lives. So Joseph Smith had the responsibility to translate uh, the Book of Mormon, and that's where our nickname comes from, um, which is also a book of scripture that was written by prophets who were primarily living here in the American continent about the same time as the Bible was written in the, in, in the ancient times. And so I thought, well, that's a unique story I can share. And the reason, it resonates with me for two reasons. One is, as, uh, as Deacon Craig shared, we're all sons and daughters of God, of a loving Heavenly Father. And I believe that God hears and answers prayers. And not just the, the prayers of people of my faith, but all of us. All of those that sincerely pray to God. And uh, I believe that, that as, as we pray, God hears those, those prayers and he answers them in his way. The second reason why is many of us gathered here today are people of faith. And we, we try to live our faith. And at times, those around us um, may not understand or may poke fun or may not... Uh, appreciate how we try to live our faith. Um, but just like Joseph Smith, where he was mocked and persecuted at times for how he lived his faith, it doesn't matter what other people say. What matters is, are we okay with God? Are we okay with how we live our faith? And uh, so that's the story that I'd like to share with, with you tonight. And I do this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Um, and then we went out to brunch with her, with her closest friends uh, from the Episcopal Church where she attended. And um, we, all, we all ordered our food, uh, at which point when the waitress stepped away, um, I, I pulled the bench out and I dropped onto one knee and I asked all her friends, since her parents weren't there, if they would be willing to give, give her hand in marriage. And of course, all the women burst into tears. And so I then proposed uh, to my wife, who is a silversmith, so I gave her a fake ring. Um, one of those, um, yeah, mood ring. Yeah, change color. I, I was instructed <laughs> to do that. Um, and I also gave her a set of masks because, um, because she is directionally dyslexic and she has a really hard time finding her way around. So I gave her masks of the West because she'd never been out uh, this way. And she was so flustered by my proposal that minutes later when the food came and she reached for the pepper to put it on her eggs benedict, the top blew off and the entire shaker of pepper ended up on her Eggs Benedict. My wife loves Eggs Benedict, by the way. So she sat there laughing half the time, crying the other half of the time, scraping pepper off of her Eggs Benedict. I will remember that moment until I, until I drop. Um, I'm sort of, I, I wouldn't dare to attempt to take the place of Rajan Zed. That's not going to happen. But I'll risk um, stepping up for Rabbi Evan this evening, and in a moment you'll see why. But first, uh, a story from around the table. On a spring day in 1968-1966, at the age of 12 in Cleveland, I was in the car with my mom, heading across town for a doctor's appointment. Two African-American men on motorcycles wearing denim and really cool shades pulled up next to us. My mother squeaked from across the front seat. Lock your door! Lock your door! The guys on the bikes sat in their lane, engines revving, um, really cool shades. Did I mention that? And they were right next to me on the passenger side. As the light turned green, the man closest to me looked over flashed a huge grin my way to beat the band, and off they roared. I've carried that moment with me to this day. And the other story I want to share is actually out of the Jewish tradition. Rabbi gathered together his students and asked them, how do we know the exact moment when night ends and day begins? It's when, standing some way away, said one student, that you can tell a sheep from a dog. The rabbi was not content with that answer. Another student said, no, it's when, standing some way away, you can tell an olive tree from a fig tree. Mm -hmm. Rabbi said, no, that's not a good definition either. Well, asked the students, what's the right answer? And the rabbi said, 
when a stranger approaches and we think that person, our brother or our sister, that is the moment when night ends and the day begins. So, hold out the hymnal, if you would, and turn to hymn 290. And with that, it concludes the 2019 Interfaith Thanksgiving Gathering. We thank you to all who shared stories tonight.